This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today I have two guests. From his home in Philadelphia is Kevin Cherry, who's a retired businessman. He worked for Microsoft for 20 years. And in studio today is my longtime friend, Vernon Burton, who has many, many titles. They take up half a page. But he is the Judge Matthew J. Perry, Jr., Distinguished Professor of History at Clemson University. And today we're going to talk about Kevin Cherry's great-great-grandfather, Lawrence Kane. Kevin, let's start off with why did you get interested in this particular topic? Everybody thinks about genealogy and what have you. Um, but when you began to explore your great-great-grandfather, you made a discovery that kind of turned things upside down. I did. I did. Well, you know, from my perspective, it really all started after my father passed away in 2014. You see, he was born in the early 1930s, and that's about 10 years after his family left South Carolina in the Great Migration. So his generation really knew little about his great-grandfather, Lawrence Kane. They were told he was a state senator in South Carolina, and they were part Cherokee Indian. My generation literally knew nothing of Lawrence Kane. So after my father passed, my sister started really looking into the family history. And uh, with work started by my father's cousins, they learned of Lawrence Kane, the fact that he actually was of African-American descent and not Cherokee. But the actual details of his life still remain a complete secret to us. So in early 2018, my sisters asked me if I could continue the research and consider writing the biography of Lawrence Kane. So I was more than happy to dive into the project to research his life. And what I found out was more fascinating than I ever expected and drove me to feverishly really complete this book, now called Virtue of Cain, From Slave to Senator, the biography of Lawrence Cain in about 18 months. And what I learned was that he was not only a witness to history, but he also took an active part in it, including major U.S. history events such as slavery, the Civil War, and the Reconstruction era that followed it. So in my opinion, and based on the life and selfish actions, he is really a true American hero, and his life should be fondly remembered and celebrated as Dr. Burton expressed in the book's foreword. All right. Well, well, let me ask you this. When your cousin first unearthed the fact that your forebear uh, was not part Cherokee but was African-American, how did your father and that generation react? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, there was a lot of skepticism because they were always told, you know, we were Cherokee. And in fact, um, you know, that's that's what they uh, believed. And so it was very hard for his generation to to really understand that, in fact, he was African-American. Uh, so my father died believing that he, in fact, was part Cherokee, not African-American. Well, you you mentioned the Great Migration, uh, which yes. some of our listeners may not uh, remember, or we've talked about it before, and that is the, the migration of African-Americans from the American South to uh, places north, New Jersey, to Detroit, to New York City, uh, following wherever the railroad literally would, would take them. And so exactly. your great-grandparents migrated to New Jersey in the 1920s, correct? Yes. And they what ended up in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And when you you checked the census in South Carolina for 1910 and 1900, you found what? Well, I found that they were listed as, in 1900, they were listed as black. Then in 1910 and 1920, and they were still in South Carolina and Johnston, they were listed as mulatto, M. Um, once they moved to New Jersey in the 1920s, by 1930 census, they were considered white. So um, pass for white. Okay, I think. See, that is that is, of course, part of the story, and that is not a unique story, Vernon. Particularly, there are South Carolina families where kin stayed in South Carolina who were African American, and siblings moved north, and they passed for white. Vernon, that's exactly right, and. Uh, it goes back, years back, as I remember, was it either your uncle or your cousin, Kevin, reached out to me when there was set-aside for minorities, and I believe he was a contractor, an engineer, and had a company, 
And right. He was my dad's cousin. That's right. He wanted to document that uh, Lawrence Kane had been Native American, and that's when I explained that Lawrence Kane was at least in Edgefield identified not only as African American, but as, if not the central, and I think he was, at least black leader of yes. Reconstruction, an era which Walter and I have talked about before, I think is the, one of the most important, if not most important, in American history once we've had the revolution in a country, and certainly one of the most misunderstood and a, and a real visionary and a leader who believed in those ideals of, of the country. But to give an example of how many, this is not a unique story, the great leader John Hope, who was from Augusta, Georgia, went off and everyone knew that he was an African-American student. I believe it was Brown University. And if I'm not mistaken, I may have the genealogy off a relative, I think it was actually an aunt, was living in that community of Providence passing as white. And yet her nephew was there celebrated as an African-American student from the South at the time. And you have to wonder about those kind of dynamics. Does he blow her cover or or what happens? Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's much more common, I think, than people realize at all. I think it's interesting, Kevin, that you looked at the census in 1900. They were listed as black. Then the next time they were listed as mulatto, which implies there was an African-American heritage, but they also had a white heritage. In some communities, particularly if you go back to Louisiana, people talk about you're a mulatto, you are a quadroon, which is one-fourth, you are an octoroon, which is one-eighth, and then you get to, as you described yourself, and I can't pronounce the word, uh, Mm one-sixteenth African-American. Yeah, so I went and took a DNA test, and it showed that I was 6% African-American, so about 116th. So now that you have been identified as being 116th African-American, what do you consider yourself? Um, I I consider myself um, what I always consider myself. Um, You know, I'm sort of your typical white man. I don't necessarily have any uh, physical features that would say that I'm African-American, but although, you know, that's not the case, I am certainly African-American, 6%. Well, Kevin, one of the fascinating things about South Carolina history and often misunderstood is that prior to 1860, who was a person of color was not identified by state law. They did not identify who was black or who was white. It was left up to the local community. And there were cases where people knew that there was African blood, or as they would say, colored blood in the family, but the community accepted them as white. In fact, Gideon Gibson, who was a hero of the revolution from the PD area, was uh, known to be a person of color But Henry Lawrence, who was a Huguenot himself, said that Gideon Gibson was lighter skinned than any Huguenot in the state of South Carolina. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Kevin Cherry and Vernon Burton about Mr. Cherry's book, Virtue of Cain, From Slave to Senator. It's the story of Lawrence Kane, who happens to be Kevin Cherry's great-great-grandfather. And Vernon, I I can see the grin on your face, and you will make a comment about the 1895 Constitutional Convention in South Carolina. And one of the great ironies, or maybe that's the, the wrong word, paradox, but the idea of who is and is not white, and I would argue black and white can be part of the same community, but that community defined it, really comes out in Ben Tillman's Constitutional Convention when they're trying to define who is black and who is white, and they're trying to put a percentage on it. And it is none other than Ben Tillman, who most people would say is the sort of leading um, demagogue use of of 
race in politics sort of defining that with this constitutional convention. It is his own brother who stands up and says, you cannot do this because some of the best families in South Carolina have African-American blood and many families fought for the Confederacy. So they should not be identified as black, even though they have African blood. So it gets confusing and it's something the South and this nation has wrestled with for years. Farnan, you, you mentioned Ben Tillman in terms of his racial views, but for our listeners, you might give a little bit more of a brief bio. Sure. Uh, well, Ben Tillman it comes out of Edgefield, and as opposed to sort of the popular myth, he's actually part of the planter class. His, his um, mother owned a large plantation and had about 75 enslaved people, uh, but he's generally at least until the last decade or so, was seen as a leader of the white farmers. And a lot of people confuse him with being a populist. He was never a populist. In fact, he fought the populist party and sort of kept the Democratic Party together and uh, became sort of the followed up of of a Civil War leader, General Martin Witherspoon Gary, who was sort of an extreme racist and used race in his language. He becomes governor. Uh, he, in particular, uh, is is fought by low country elites who he attacks in Charleston and others. And he is one of the most uh, controversial and also, at the time, a popular governor. Goes on to be senator and is one of the most powerful politicians. Uh, sort of becomes the head of... Many people think of the Edgefield ring that dominated the state for a long time. Well, what we've got here is a South Carolina where the color line is actually more fluid in reality than people have remembered or that history has uh, recorded. In fact, Vernon, I've heard another version of what you said in 1895 that George Tillman said, not a man could be sitting in that convention if the one drop rule were enforced, yeah, I've heard I've heard that too, Walter, and uh, so, and I think there may be some truth to it. Well, wasn't there a recent study done that if DNA tests were performed of all the population of Louisiana and South Carolina, that they would be black majority states? <laughs> so, anyway, back to Mr. Lawrence Kane, Kevin. You, you've got the information that your cousin and your sister have discovered, and you retired from Microsoft, and now you decide to write a biography. I mean, that's a fairly ambitious project, even for mm-hmm. a descendant. Yes, it certainly was. Um, it took, like I said, about 18 months or so, but really finding out each individual piece of information really moved me forward to, to the next piece. Um, you know, some of the things that we hadn't talked about is he was actually um, born in 96, South Carolina. He was actually born to Samson Kane, who was of the planter class. He was his master and actually owned 50 slaves, including Lawrence and his mother and possibly his brother. He had a thousand acre um, uh, plantation there about a mile and a half uh, south of the 96 depot which is currently where the uh, 96 uh, elementary and high school resides. So his mother was a slave, his father was a planter. That's right. And so we really don't know who his mother was, although we never identify Samson Kane. And he did go to war as a servant. Yes, Yes. after his, uh, his father died, he actually was sold to Zachariah Carwile um, in about eight, uh, 1860, and he actually had him go to the Civil War, 1861, with his son, Thomas Carwile, as a body servant. All right, and he serves, he's there throughout the war, and something very interesting happens at the very end. He, he's wounded, and he goes to the hospital, and what happens there? 
Right. At the hospital, well, he was at the surrender, um, part of McGowan's bur- uh, brigade there. But at the hospital, they had listed him as a rebel. Um, he must have been dressed very similar. And he had a, um, a wound in his um, left leg, a gunshot wound. Uh, two days after that, they changed it to um, servant. And so, you know, decided that he was not a rebel, but in fact, he was actually an enslaved servant. Well, uh, see, that, that that goes to the point of the color of his skin that in, the, in terms of the battlefield. He could have passed for white. So he comes back home, the, the war is over, and that's when his career really begins, his, his work in Edgefield County. Right. So one of the first things he did at 21, 22 years old in 1866, he started a school. Um, and he started it for um, the ex-slaves. Uh, and he had about 50 to 60 students uh, that he taught until about 1870. He also started, um, was established a uh, church, which is the Macedonian Baptist Church there in Edgefield, which still exists today. Uh, so two of the things he started before he actually got into politics. Okay. Now, Vernon, this is very interesting. Right after the Civil War, he starts the school because he he can read and write. Now, how? That was illegal in South Carolina before 1860 to have uh, taught us an enslaved person to read and write. That's right. And, and there are penalties for doing it. Uh, but as, as a number of, of sh- studies have shown, uh, there were, uh, I've forgotten that the last number I saw, and there's probably been more research, but at least 10% or so of enslaved people, more among men, were able to read and write. Um, You had masters actually teaching them because they could use their skills in reading Mm -hmm. and writing. And of course, we could even go back in Edgefield to Dave the Potter, uh, where we know that he is is uh, writing poetry and putting it on his mm-hmm. pottery. And then the other side of that is this desire for education, the push for education. It really comes from the African-American community for public education, and Lawrence Kane is one of the, the first and not the only one throughout the state of South Carolina uh, before missionaries can really get into the state from outside the North thinking they're going to bring education to the freed people here in the uh, uh, in South Carolina, American South. Uh, African-Americans are pushing and having their own schools. Well, Kevin, I think it's interesting that, that you found that the Edgefield Advertiser, uh, which was certainly a white establishment newspaper, if there ever were one, um, reports on your great-great-grandfather's school. Yes, they report, and they, they report that actually things are going very well, and uh, it's somewhat of a, uh, a love fest at that point with Lawrence Kane and the, um, the Democrats there within Edgefield. We talk about his community work, but then he gets involved in politics. That's right. So in 1867, he was appointed to the Edgefield Commissions of Elections. And so he went out actually um, to the county and actually um, got to know all the constituents within the um, Edgefield there from the Republican side. And so in 1868, he was actually elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives for Edgefield. Um, and he remained there until 1872 when he was uh, voted in as state senator. He was not just a member. He was an active member of, of the House. He was, he was a very active member of it. You know, he not only was part of the House of Representatives, he also joined the, the National Guard and the state militia around the same time in 1869. And then in 1870, he was appointed to the school commissioner of Edgefield County. And then, of course, reelected to his House of Representatives role again in 1870. The tone of the Edgefield advertiser began to change with regard to how they reported on Kane once he got into politics. Yes, that's true. He couldn't do anything right at that point. Um, it was, you know, very uh, Democratic versus the Republicans. In most cases, Republicans were 
former slaves, um, and the Democrats were the former ruling class. Well, some of the terms in in the eight, early 1866, when he opened his school, he was referred to as the genteel cane. Mm-hmm. Once he was elected to the House in 1868, he was considered offensive to white people because of his swagger and bad character. Right. And in another instance, he was referred to as Lawrence Kane, parentheses, a bow-legged mulatto. Right. Now, Vernon, I can see you smiling again because you grew up with the Edgefield Advertiser. Um, but with your history of Edgefield County, you might want to elaborate on this kind of verbiage was commonplace. It was, and, and the big transition, of course, is the Civil War, the loss of the war, but not understanding that what was coming was the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and particularly is precedes the 15th Amendment, but because South Carolina when they have a provisional governor, uh, they enact black codes. In other words, for many whites, they thought they were being fairly liberal, giving certain rules to govern black people who were now free. And of course, their model had been those African-Americans who'd been free before the Civil War, so they really limited things. And this really flew in the face of particularly in the North where so many people had died and thought they were fighting for freedom and to see these things happen. The South Carolina, along with the rest of the Confederacy, except for Tennessee, was put under military districts. And then African-Americans were allowed to vote in 1867, register to vote and vote. And this is when things really start to hit the fan when politics are involved for whites who clearly believed in white supremacy. It was bad enough to see black troops stationed in Edgefield, but with African-Americans not only voting, but being a majority of the voters uh, and the population in Edgefield, things turned very nasty very quickly. Well, yeah, in Edgefield, the the African Americans, the blacks had a, about two thousand majority in terms of voting. Yeah, it was about sixty four percent, which actually was a little bit higher than the the state at large. It was about a sixty. South Carolina was sixty percent African American, and remained sixty percent African American into the twentieth early twentieth century, uh, and that had a tremendous influence on the events, the simple demographic fact of the white population being the minority. But to say, make derogatory comments in the press, Kane was a member of the House. He was a member of the General Assembly. But because he was African-American, they felt free to say whatever they wanted to. That's right. Um, he still had a, um, a good relationship with uh, his former owner, um, Zachariah Carwile, and his son, Thomas. In fact, in 1869, he purchased 46.5 acres of land there in Edgefield County for about $450, which was extremely unusual for any uh, black man. Uh, Canaan felt, felt that uh, you couldn't be free unless you owned your own land. Well... He eventually amassed 200 acres, which in right. 19th century South Carolina, except for the large landowners, for the independent farmer, Vernon, that would have been a big a big plot of land. That's right. Right. And he also, 1880, he bought a house for 1400 right off of uh, the courthouse square there in Edgefield, which um, he did buy it off of a white doctor. Now... Vernon, I'd like you to comment on that because I found that that Kane, this is after the end of Reconstruction, he's buying a a home right in downtown Edgefield. Uh, I almost find that difficult to believe. Well, I, I actually think, Walter, we've misread what happened. We know the result, but a lot of people, 
uh, and particularly African Americans, kept a positive belief that with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, uh, with a war that changed from a war to maintain the Union, and then through the course of the war, a war to end slavery, and then initially in Reconstruction, adding to the Constitution amendments that guaranteed equal rights and voting, the belief that for a long time that things still could go forward as they had under Reconstruction. Remember, Cain is teaching school, but then Robert Smalls, another black leader from Buford, South Carolina, introduces the bill for, a pub, for public education. And so you still have schools for black children, and they're being funded at that time. And I think people see it as opportunity. And we forget that this was folks' home, that they had grown up here. They had networks, communities, and churches. And, of course, Lawrence Kane had a law degree, as did Paris Simpkins, another Edgefield well, leader. Uh, so they felt fairly comfortable. And you had the national Republicans in the national level. They were in charge. So Lawrence Kane is not only a census enumerator in 1870, but also 1880. And there are a lot of government um, patronage jobs that can provide finance and money to people who are still loyal to the Republican Party. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned attorney, and Kevin, you, one of the things that you dug up was the fact that your great-great-grandfather got a law degree. Yes, he was. He was one of actually the first um, African-Americans to enroll in South Carolina University in 1873. So there, I think there were 30 at that point. And he actually graduated with the last class to include African-Americans uh, until the 18, uh, 1960s. Uh, I think there were 17 African-Americans that graduated with him. And you, you also point out that the University of South Carolina was the first public university in the United States to accept African-American students. Uh, Midwestern universities, which boast about when they took school uh, African-Americans, were decades later. And Vernon, you're shaking your head because you taught at one of those Midwestern That's schools. Right. And, uh, um, and, and, uh, in Illinois. And uh, I think it's one of these things we need to be proud of in this state that, as I said, Reconstruction is so misunderstood. It was one of the most progressive eras uh, in American history led in the South, in the American South. Okay. All right. Your, your grandfather does practice law, uh, but he maintains an active life in the Edgefield community until his death. Yes, he did. Um, he actually never practiced law, um, but he um, he did leave an active uh, life. Um, of course, in 1876, he was he was voted out, um, and I guess we'll get into that discussion in just a bit. Yeah. But continued um, his career. In fact, uh, in uh, he was appointed to uh, chairman of the Edgefield uh, Republican Party in 1882. And then 1882 as well, he was uh, appointed deputy directory of the uh, Internal Revenue Department. So th this is what what Vernon had mentioned earlier is that the patronage of the Republican Party helped at least some African Americans maintain a position of authority and power that the white community had no way of of uh, undermining. Now. We do know about the postmaster in Lake City who was who was murdered, the fact that the folks in Charleston did not want to accept the customs uh, officials, but U.S. presidents had other things to say and said, yes, you, yes, you will. So that gave your great-great-grandfather a position in the Edgefield community. If he's dealing with internal revenue, then... He's not somebody you want chairman. to. You, yep. you don't want to mess with him. So I mean, seriously, that's that's an important part of his story. 
Vernon, you keep looking like you want to add something here. No, I think you're exactly right, Walter. It's a story that this, uh, as I said, I think we we too often read it backward, knowing knowing how it came out in the years of Jim Crow. But there was no way that King could not think that we'll have a fair election next time. Maybe, well, maybe we'll be able to to change things. And, and you know, there was this, as we know from our own studies. Walter, that uh, that fear remained for whites as well and affected our state in, in extraordinary ways and took some of our most talented uh, leaders down a path that if they had perhaps not spent their time trying to figure out how to keep African-Americans from voting, could have done a lot better things for the state. Well, let's let's talk about how Lawrence Kane lost the election, his re-election bid in 1876. Um, and Vernon, why don't you set the background for what's going on in South Carolina uh, in 1876? Well, it's, it's interesting because we, we tend to isolate South Carolina, but it's part of what's going on uh, throughout the South, and it's sort of tested out in Mississippi and in Louisiana, where, in fact, uh, violence and terrorism is used to overthrow contested elections in particular. But I would argue where legitimate um, bipartisan, excuse me, not bipartisan, black and whites who are part of the Republican parties have been elected and whites uh, through terrorism uh, and murder, uh, particularly of leaders, basically take over the government coup d'etats. And in fact, I don't think we've made enough of it that the Krushank opinion comes down from the Supreme Court right before the Hamburg massacre in which the Supreme Court holds that uh, you cannot convict an individual who has murdered a black leader because they're not part of the state or or legal officials. And so that sort of opens a door for a reign of terror. And I don't know any other way to explain it. Uh, But the red shirt movement in South Carolina, and particularly it's often called the Edgefield Plan, and Martin Witherspoon Gary, who I'd mentioned before, had been a general in the Civil War who rode under Wade Hampton, and Matthew Calvert Butler were two of the leaders of this. And uh, uh, Gary actually corresponded with people in Mississippi, a former South Carolinian, in fact, about how Mississippi did this. And then they led that campaign in 1876 uh, to overthrow. And a lot's been made of it. Uh, I remember the first time I ever found Gary's plan in the South Carolina Library. It was shocking to me. I should have read it in Simpkins, actually, uh, in Simpkins and Woody. It's an appendix there, but somehow I'd missed it. But seeing it written out to say that you don't just threaten someone, uh, it's better to murder them because if you threaten them, they may cause more problems. So you had this literally a coup d'etat. And then you have a contested period until uh, it's agreed that Hayes, the Republican, will be the president, but that South Carolina, the troops are not necessarily withdrawn, but they aren't used to support the Republicans, the federal troops. There were just a few in the state at the time. And uh, that local control is going to basically be with the whites or the Democrats, because they were white Republicans in South Carolina. Vernon, the Hamburg Massacre uh, literally changed the election campaign of, of 1876. Up until the Hamburg Massacre, there had been uh, at least some hope of a fusion between moderate white Democrats uh, and Republicans. but. The Hamburg Massacre changed all that. It, it really did. And uh, uh, it's beginning of the red shirt campaign in some ways. 
it, it's, it deserves a book on its own, and we don't want to spend all the time on the Hamburg Massacre, but basically two young men were coming through Edgefield. A militia, black militia, was drilling. The whites wanted them to get out of the way. An altercation occurred, and with that, you basically had the rounding up of a paramilitary group who attacked the town and then after having uh, and Hamburg was basically an African American community with a few whites in it and a Republican stronghold Uh, Prince Rivers an important leader was involved in this was trying to keep the peace there Uh, Matthew Carberth Butler uh, was in charge. A lot of people came in from Georgia. They brought a cannon in. They captured a number of people and then executed them as they were were running away. And that sort of sets the tone. You have an Ellington massacre after where Ben Tillman again is part of this. Uh, at that time, he's a, I think, maybe a captain in this little paramilitary group. He, he boasted about. It. He, he did, and Hamburg and and in Clemson, there are papers where he actually got affidavits to prove that he was at Hamburg, and said, you know, we killed. And, and in the U.S. Senate, he says he brags. He said we killed people. And we were right to do it, and uh, it was a necessary thing for white supremacy. Okay, and Kevin, let's get back to Lawrence now. Uh, the whole, the whole tenor of the eighteen seventy six election campaign has changed. Your great great grandfather stopped campaigning in open, did he not? He did. He did. He was in fear of his life. There were a number of uh, death threats against him. Um, in fact, uh, I know in the four there, uh, Dr. Burton, you put that at least seven other politicians were killed during that period. So he feared for his life, so he did not, he did not campaign. Um, and when the election results came in, now Vernon, you're going to have to refresh my memory, but I think uh, Kane's Democratic opponent got more votes than there were residents of, right. of Edgefield County. That's right. There were yeah. like 2,000 more votes than there were voters, and uh, uh, they blocked people. And I, I believe you talk about it here, don't you, uh, um, a yes. little bit, Kevin, that literally that Kane tried to go vote and they wouldn't let people, they stopped people from voting. Yeah, uh, there were two voting boxes in Edgefield, one at the courthouse and one at the uh, Macedonian church. And literally he would take groups of hundreds of people up and down. It was about a mile or so apart between the poles. And each time there were horses backed up to the steps of the courthouse. There were um, hooligans at the um, the church, not letting people through. Um, it was a very ruckus environment there. And he lost. Oh, he, he lost. lost. Well, um, he, he yeah, technically he lost. Okay, so his political career is over in eighteen seventy seven, except for his appointments by the National That's Republican right. Party. Uh, but he he stays there in Edgefield, and he still is a community leader. Um, and as Vernon pointed out, he buys a house. Yep. Uh, he still has family. Yeah. All right. And let let's talk about the family after that to get to the generations of your great grandparents moving to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, as I mentioned in the. 1920s, Thomas Cherry Jr., um, in fact, his father was a wheelwright um, for the uh, Confederate Army there and um, had a pension. Um, anyway, he married uh, Lawrence Kane's daughter, and they lived in Edgefield for about 20 years, Johnston, and then moved, as I said, to New Brunswick, New Jersey, in the uh, 1920s, and that's where, in fact, they, they pass for white. All right. See, this several things you said that were defenders. First of all, uh, Mr. Cherry uh, had been a wheelwright, and he was in Confederate service, not as a soldier, but he 
also received a Confederate pension from the state of South Carolina. He did. He did. And he was actually, if you look at the census, he was considered mulatto, although he, he claimed that he was never uh, enslaved. There's, there's so great a study still to be done of who and why and when these uh, uh, pensions were given to African-Americans who were body servants or wheelwrights or in other ways went off with the Confederacy. I find it just fascinating, Walter. Well, There's a specific example. They, they, they had to apply for right. And to have two people, as I remember. Yeah, they had to have two white mm -hmm. persons uh, verify their uh, their service. And I don't want to take us too far away, but I was fascinated by the Quarles family in Edgefield, also free black. You have one who dies at Petersburg, and the other, a brother of his, who is a cook for the Edgefield troop that is there and who does get a pension. Later, two brothers, black, from Edgefield, free blacks, before the war, sort of on either side. I guess the one who's cooking is not necessarily on the side, but he gets a Confederate veteran. Well, pension. Again, that is that is part of the complexity. The interesting history of South Carolina, which there's always something popping up that. Folks say, I didn't know that. Mm. Um, so, Kevin, are there Kane? Do you have Kane relatives still living in South Carolina? One of the things I did was um, try to do studying in terms of the genealogy side. Um, we did a we actually unveiled a plaque in Edgefield in 2019. Uh, a few people who said they were um, relatives on the Kane side did show up. But in general, when I look into, for example, Ancestry.com, I would say overall it's probably 90% of the people that I see in there are white and not African-American. So it's still been somewhat a challenge. I'm still searching for that. Well, didn't... Didn't you, when you went into Ancestor.com in terms of DNA to identify Dr. Samuel Kane as your your forebear? Right. I was able to find other Kanes um, that were re directly related to Samson Kane. In fact, um, the, the grandparent of Samson Kane, we had mutual grandparents. Uh, the Kane family that I'm talking about moved from Edgefield in the early 1800s to Alabama. Um, but directly related. Okay. Are there, uh, you, you mentioned the Carwiles who, who were uh, Kane's second owners and th with whom he kept a relationship. Are there any of those folks still in Edgefield that you've touched base with? I, I have not. Um, actually, Zachariah Carwile died in, um, he, he died in Montana in uh, 1880s or some point in that time. So he had already left Edgefield, um, although his son Thomas remained. Fernan, you're you're very close to the folks in in Edgefield. How has been their reaction to this biography? Well, I think they've been very supportive of the research and of other research. Uh, uh, a book I particularly like is one that I helped a little bit with, but uh, uh, Harris Bailey and Bernice uh, Bernard uh, put together our ancestors, our stories of stories of uh, African-Americans of Edgefield. Um, we did a, a program, and uh, I don't think people, a lot of people did not like my interpretation of Reconstruction, but I think they were very supportive of the research and the story and the history that uh, uh, Kevin uh, brought forward with this. As I said, there's a plaque put up and put in the Edgefield, um, uh, it's not a museum. The historical Society. Yeah, the Historical Society to Lawrence Kane and the recognition of the multicultural history of the history of the South as black and white and of this period of Reconstruction. And there was a big crowd there, Kevin, as I remember, 
when yeah, we we're spoke. Yeah, about 40, 50 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was very pleased, and I particularly have been pleased in how the people of Edgefield have opened up the archives to do genealogical research and particularly to encourage African-Americans to do genealogical research. And we're uncovering a lot of stories and a lot of narratives that gives us a better perspective of what our history really is, Uh, the interactions of blacks and whites at different periods and different times and their perceptions. Uh, And it really does, as you have well stated many times, it shows the complexity of our history of the South, in particular of South Carolina. This little community of Edgefield is just one of many that have these fascinating stories and interconnections. All right, Kevin, I want to get back to to your family. Um, How have your children felt about your uncovering their, their family history? Well, it's interesting. Um, my my children and their generation, they're it's it's very exciting for them. Um, quite different, I think, from two generations ago, where it was completely hidden. Um, here, it's actually embraced and enjoyed. The cover story, and I don't want to I use that term loosely of how your great grandparents explained skin color that was. They were they were Indian. Um, mm-hmm. Other folks in South Carolina over time used different stories. There was a, a family I will not name. Um, Mr. So and So was dark, but he had coffee poisoning because he drank too much coffee. You know, and it, it's also interesting. Sometimes persons of color did not want to claim white ancestry, and they would say they had Indian ancestry. So it's it's a very complicated story when you start dealing with with race in South Carolina. You have treat you have treated this topic, Kevin, I think historically it's a very nice job. You know, you've done a, you've done a lot of research, but you've also um, delved into something that a lot of folks would still want to keep hidden. So that's true. That's true. Um, you know, <laughs> some people had said I was brave to do it. I didn't look at it that way. I was just reporting the truth. Um, I was telling the story. All and right. I think that's exactly what Walter and I think we need to do as historians. And I, I do want to congratulate Kevin, who sort of been there from the beginning with him as he worked through this journey and and the family. I thought it was it, it is a a positive sign of how your children have embraced their cultural and ancestral heritage too, Kevin. And I think that's very hopeful for us for the future of our country. All right, gentlemen, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. And so, Vernon, I'll go to you first. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? No, but I do just basically want to encourage other people to do their own histories their own research. And I think maybe Kevin can say it can be fun as well as enlightening, can't it, Kevin? Absolutely. And Kevin, any last words you might have for us? Um, Well, just the fact that um, I wanted to thank you for showcasing Lawrence Kane in the book here today. And, you know, I think there's a lot more to learn, not only from Lawrence Kane, but from other African-Americans and politicians from his time. I think that whole period has been sort of erased to some extent from um, history in South Carolina. So the more we can bring it to light, the better. All right. So Kevin Cherry, the author of Virtue of Cain and Vernon Burton, the Matthew Perry Professor of History at Clemson University. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. And thank you, Walter, for all you do for South Carolina and South Carolina history. Yes, thank you. My pleasure.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did, because the story of Lawrence Kane is another facet of the complicated, interesting, and sometimes controversial history of South Carolina. After the death of his father, Kevin Cherry decided to pursue his family's story, their ancestry. What he discovered fascinated him. It interested some members of the family, and it's a remarkable story. It's a story about a part of South Carolina's history that, quite frankly, is often left out of historical accounts, even in the 21st century. But the story of Lawrence Kane, senator from Edgefield County, is a part of South Carolina history, our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.